Good morning, everyone. Man, it's great to be together. A special uh, welcome to my friends, uh, Cedric's parents who are on Zoom. Hi, Cedric's parents. Thanks for joining us. It's, uh, it's really great to be together. You know, a few weeks ago, or I guess, was it last Friday? Yeah, a few, I'll just say a few weeks ago, our campus ministry and our youth and family ministry got together for our annual coffee house. And that was incredible. Many of you came to support and that was an opportunity to show off talents, to fundraise money for people to go to our spring retreat or a teen camp. We raised nearly $1,000 for those things. And so thank you for your generosity. But when the Quesada girls brought out the harp, I was done. I mean, there was a, literally a full-size harp in the room. It was amazing. And so I'll see you guys there next year. Um, now I want to share something before we jump into this lesson that the Bible says... You know, when someone's going through some mourning, mourn with them. When someone rejoices, you need to rejoice with them as well. And I'm going to need you to rejoice with me here. Is that okay? You might be tempted to mourn, but you can rejoice. Brielle and I were on a date, and we uh, had this, this app that, you know, asks questions, allows us to kind of go deeper in our marriage and conversations. It's like, if, you, if, if money were an issue and you can go anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? It was a Friday. I was like, this is never going to happen, but I would love to go to Hawaii. Uh, that, I mean, especially in this New Jersey cold, I would love to go to Hawaii. That was on Friday. On Saturday, I got a phone call, and there's a program called Hope Youth Corps. You guys heard of Hope Youth Corps? And so it's a program where communities or teens and um, adults, campus students from all across the world go to a, a similar place where there's a pre-existing hope worldwide program and engage in mutually beneficial service. And so I got a phone call on Saturday saying, hey, Matt, would you and Brielle like to lead the youth corps in Hawaii? Oh. But no, no, I'm sorry, I'm busy. You will not be seeing me for a few weeks in July, right? But, uh, but Youth Corps is an awesome program. I recommend everybody. As a teen, I went to, I think I've been on six different Youth Corps all across the world. It broadened my perspective of the kingdom of God. Families can go. It's an amazing opportunity to practice the ministry of Jesus in terms of serving and walking with and loving communities that we typically don't interact with. And so if you're interested in participating in a Youth Corps or a Volunteer Corps, Please come talk to me. I'm a champion for it. I love it. And they're taking me to Hawaii, you know what I mean? But uh, I'll come back. I'll come back. All right. But in talking about Hawaii, it's prepared me to, to just a few things that I've been thinking about. And uh, I was learning different words, things like pono and mahalo and, and uh, things like that. And this word koa was a word that kept coming up. And the word koa, it's a, it's a koa tree. It's a type of tree that grows in a, it's a sacred tree that represents strength and resilience. It's a tree that grows in a high altitude. It's in a place that's very warm. It gets hit with sea breezes, humid sea, cold breezes. And so very few uh, bits of agriculture actually exist in this area. But the koa tree survives. It's a tree of resilience and strength. It grows and lives in difficult situations and difficult conditions. And even with the koa tree, many seeds are planted 
but very few make it. The ones that do, the ones that do navigate and make it are the ones that mature and grow because of their ability to navigate through the many challenges of development. Does that make sense? When I heard about the poetry, I thought a lot about our relationship with God. You know, to make it, to mature, to develop as a disciple, it is an unfriendly ground. It is in challenging soil. There is persecution, there are directions, there are all types of opposition that would make it very understandable by why things wouldn't grow. But we decide, when we decide to follow Jesus, we say, despite the opposition, despite the challenges, like was said in communion, Jesus is worth it. I'm going to dig my roots down deep. I am going to survive because we know that the strongest tree grows where the strongest breeze blows. And so we want this to describe our relationship with God. Men and women who are bent on perseverance, who are bent on maturity, who, are, who, over, who can endure resistance, who are strong, like the poetry, the older we get spiritually, the deeper our roots grow and the stronger our trunk gets. And so today, as we're going to talk about development and maturity, it's interesting because the book of Hebrews, on the opposite side of the world from Hawaii, the Hebrews writer was teaching, challenging, and sometimes he was rebuking a primarily Jewish Christian audience about how to develop and how to grow in a, a soil that is unfertile, how to grow in the midst of heavy persecution, how to grow in the midst of opposition. And that's what, that's what the Hebrews writer talks about. In chapter 3, verse 13, we see part of the development process and growth for disciples. Hebrews 3, 13, in unfertile soil, the Hebrews writer says, to encourage one another as long as it's called today. What day is called today? Tomorrow will be called today, tomorrow, right? Every day is called today. And so the Hebrews writer says, man, we need to saturate ourselves in encouragement if we are going to grow and develop, we need that to be a, we need to be bilingual in encouragement. We need to speak that fluently. In Hebrews 4.12, he goes on to say that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. If we are going to grow and develop, we need to be in God's word. In chapter 4, verse 15, he reminds them to look at Jesus, who is our Messiah, our Lord, who has undergone every trial that you go through and has, has come out the other side without having sinned. Because if you're going to make it, look at Jesus. Hebrews 11 and 12, the hall of faith. You know, the Hebrews writer says, look at your brothers and sisters in history who not even having Jesus persevered despite the opposition, despite the frustration. And with a crowd surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Throw off all the sin that so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus. And so the Hebrews writer is talking to a church that is going through some hard times, but needs to help, needs help in their development and their maturity. And I love what, uh, what Ted shared last Sunday. Can we just give it up for Ted one more time? My gosh. I don't know how many of you went and talked to Ted after service, right? He said, I'll be in the back. Your boy ain't running. But that was an amazing, amazing lesson. 
But we're reminded that the Hebrew, that sometimes uh, the New York City area, sometimes the church, sometimes me, we find ourselves in a very prime place to be talked to by the writers of the Bible. We look at the book of Hebrews, and I see a lot of myself in the audience for the Hebrew church. And in chapter 6, we're going to spend a good amount of time today, and I hope to encourage you with this. But in chapter 6, the Hebrews writer warns the church, warns the Jewish Christians, saying that one of the things that's going to keep them from developing and maturing has been their lack of attention to the basics. Because you got to go back and focus on the basics, the fundamentals of discipleship. I love our church. And as you look around, many things you notice about our church, but one of the things I appreciate the most is our diversity in age. I love that. Physical age as well as spiritual age. You know, we have people here who've been Christians for uh, less than three months. We have, Christian, we have people who've been here Christians longer than 30 years. And so there's so much to learn from one another. And as we look at Hebrews 6 here, Hebrews 6 here, we think about to the young Christians, for the young Christians who are trying to come up in God, they need to develop roots. They need to dig down deep and be excellent in the basics. Not yet. They need to be excellent in the basics to really challenge their, their, their new perspective. You could not pay me to be a young Christian again. That was uncharted, challenging waters. But thankfully, as young Christians, we have older Christians to look to as examples. You know, for the older Christians in the room who've been around, I'll just say longer than five years. If you've been around longer than five years, you're an old Christian at this point, right? That's how we feel about the campus ministry. We're like, man, five years, you're ancient. But if you've been around for a little bit, we look to you for your example. But we also need your help in our development. We need your help in walking with and in, in training and teaching the young Christians here. That's what's so beautiful about the, the synchronization of our church is that we are all helping each other no matter what the age, right? And so in Hebrews chapter 6, and that's why I love our Adopt-A-College student that's been going so well. Thank you for all you who are participating in that. But let's read Hebrews chapter 6 together. The tone here that Paul uses is very challenging, but we need to take this from our perspective, knowing that there are some things that we can learn here as well. Matt can learn here as well. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the writer says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance that, from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. I love this verse. When the Bible uses the word therefore, we have to um, understand that it's in the context of a larger uh, a book. In Hebrews chapter 5, uh, the writer challenges the church because he says, by now, Jewish Christians, by now, those of you who've been around for a long time ought to be teachers, but you still need to focus on the elementary truths. And this are, these are the elementary truths that he focuses on. And I think about myself as a growing disciple I have to make sure that I, that we, are holding on to the elementary truths. They were challenged here. 
Paul challenges, or not Paul, sorry, the Hebrews writer challenges the Hebrews to move beyond these elementary teachings of following Christ. If you look closely at what these things are, he's saying, man, some of y'all are stuck talking about do we need to repent or not? Some of you guys are struggling. This is the, the audience in the Hebrews. You know, some of you are not getting that baptism is necessary. We're still talking about it. He goes, you have to have faith. You have to repent. Resurrection of the dead. Brothers and sisters were straight up unwilling to repent. And, and the Hebrews writer says, this is not good. Church, how can the church grow if we can't agree on the most simple, basic things. How can the church, he challenges the church, we need to move beyond the elementary teachings. Jesus did die and he resurrected. How can we be fruitful if that is not accepted? And so he challenges the church to focus and to, to agree and to understand that these are just elementary things. And if we are going to go on to maturity, we're going to develop deep and wide trunks that can withstand the storm. We have to hold on to the convictions, the elementary teachings. Amen? We have to accept, to lock in, and to believe with every fiber of our being the elementary truths of following Jesus. And so today, with the time that we have, we're going to navigate through six convictions, six truths. Next slide. Six elementary convictions that wherever you are on your faith journey, whether you are brand new to the block or you've been around for 20, 30 years, the Hebrews writer is reminding us, hey, there are some things that we have to keep on going back to. And this is not to hit at anybody upside the head. Instead, this is the vision that if we are going to continue to grow, to mature, to develop into the great men and women of God that he's designed us to be, we cannot neglect the basics. We cannot neglect the blocking and tackling of Christianity. And so I'm going to share these convictions. And what I want you to do is, as I say it, I want to hear you say it. Does that sound good? So I'll read it and you read it back to me. Number one, Jesus is Lord of my life. Let me hear you say it. Okay, now let me hear you say it like you actually believe it. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord of my life. Oh, Rob believes it. I like it, right? Jesus is Lord of my life. Elementary conviction number one. Galatians 2.20. As we follow Jesus, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As followers of Jesus this morning, we have to remember that Jesus is the Lord of my life. That Jesus is the one who we follow, who calls the shots. And sometimes we can let a spirit of entitlement creep in to our discipleship of Jesus. I don't want to do that. I am uncomfortable doing that. This is hard for me. 
And although all those things may be true, we were reminded when we first sat down to study the Bible that to follow Jesus, Luke 9, 23, is to deny ourselves and to follow him. What Jesus wants, although it may not be easy, and certainly our natural reaction, our default might not be like, yes, hallelujah, share my faith in the grocery store, right? Although that's likely not our first reaction, we wrestle those feelings. We don't let them go unchecked on the shelf. We say, Jesus is Lord of my life. What he loves, I love. What he hates, I hate. He goes left, I go left. He says, stop, I stop. Because he is Lord of my life. Number two, I will grow spiritually. Nice. I will grow spiritually. As I read in Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrews writer goes on to say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. You know, what I love about Jesus, that word pioneer and perfecter, essentially means that he's the creator and then he perfected his creation. For those of you who love video games, he is the de developer of the video game and he is the guide to the video game. He made it and then said, follow me as we navigate it. And so as we fix our eyes on Jesus, something that happens when I fix my eyes on Jesus, 12 and a half years as a Christian now, the more I fix my eyes on Jesus, the more I realize how far I am from his likeness. In action, right? I look at Jesus and I go, oh my gosh, look at the way he loves. Look at the way he is patient with that person. He, he was willing to detour his entire plan to focus on her or on him. Oh my goodness. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can't help but feel, I have not arrived yet. There is so much room to grow. There's a danger sometimes in our awesome community of, of church and fellowship. There's a danger to play the game of comparison. I look around and I go, hmm, uh, well, I'm not doing what that person is doing, or, or I attend more, more services than that person attends, or we make these very strange, weird metrics of where we're at spiritually. But when we focus and lock eyes with King Jesus, we go, I have so much room to grow. I'm the furthest thing from having arrived. And so we read we pray, we fight to have our quiet times because disciples of Jesus want so badly to be like Jesus. Learners are page turners and leaders are readers. And so if we're gonna develop spiritually, we have to have that conviction. I will grow spiritually. I have not arrived yet, amen? Number three, God's word is my standard. Let me hear you say it. I love it. I've got Matthew 7, 24 up there, but we're actually going to go to check out Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. As you know that verse, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Hebrews writer again encourages the church to say, your tool for transformation is the word of God. The word of God is sharper than any sword, 
It separates joint from marrow, soul from spirit. You know, I, I'll be honest. I've been, we've been doing word study, Bible studies with friends for a long time. And anytime I teach this verse, I'm like, I don't even know the difference between soul and spirit. Maybe y'all come up here and teach me, right? I don't know the difference between soul and spirit. All I know is that when my spirit's off, my soul is off. And when my soul is off, my spirit is off, right? I love myself some marrow inside the bone, right? But if you were to take a raw bone, cut it open, the bone sort of just folds into marrow. There's no point in which the two are separate. And I believe Hebrews writer, as he's making this point, he's saying two things that were never intended to be separated, God's word can separate. Now, brothers and sisters, there are things in our character there are things that we have going on in our lives that if we attempt to change without God's word taking principal effect in our life, God's word being the guidepost in the direction that we use to navigate, we are wasting our time. I could ask you, hey, go outside and chop down a tree. Here is a steak knife. We'll see you in three days and with a very sore hand and a standing tree, right? where I go, here is the chainsaw. Brothers and sisters, God's word is the chainsaw of our transformation. And so with the things in our character, the many things that we're all looking to grow in, book, chapter, and verse. Do you have the book, chapter, and verse for the areas that you wanna grow and that you wanna change? If, the, if life is a movie, the Bible is my script. It is my scripture for navigating life. Amen? Number four, we're working our way through. This is an important one. Let me hear you say it with all your heart after I say it. Sin is serious and must be radically addressed. All right. I know we're getting a little bit heavy now, but that's okay, right? This is part of, these are the elementary teachings. As we sit down with, with people who are ready to become Christians, we go through each of these things. Are you ready to deal with sin seriously? Because if you're not careful, it can happen as a disciple. I, I am reminded regularly that sin happens even in the church. Sin is not something that is solely for the outside of the church. It could happen right here. And it does happen right here. Some of the most heartbreaking conversations that Brielle and I have to be in that I, that I wish I didn't, but it's just part of what we do, are sitting with disciples who have fallen into some sort of sin. It happens right here. And so we have to take it seriously. Galatians 5.19 was written to the church saying, hey, this stuff cannot live here. In Ephesians 5.3, Paul says, but among you, there must not even be a hint, not even a little bit of sasson, not even a little bit of spice, not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. As disciples in, the, in, in following Jesus, we say, I am following the most holy person to have ever lived. If I'm following him, I am striving not simply to survive, but to thrive. I'm, I'm following someone who is set apart. I too must be set apart. I do not want to blend in with the world. 
I do not want our church to blend in with the world. You know, God defines what sin is in Galatians 5, 2 Timothy 3, James 4, 17, all these different verses. God defines what the line of sin is, not so that we can tiptoe next to it, but so we know which direction to run. And so for us, as we're fighting against our sin, as we're taking sin seriously, we have to be open about it. We have to address it. We have to deal with it. Amen? Number five, I love this one. The church is my family. Or sorry, this, sorry. <laughs> Hello. This is my church. Let me hear you say it with emphasis on my. This is my church. Okay. There are some theological problems with this statement. Whose church is this really? Jesus' church. This is his church. This is not Russ and Sari's church or Matt's church or Sam Powell. This is Jesus' church. But sometimes when we talk about the church, we say, what are you guys doing this weekend? What are you guys doing on Sunday or Friday on Wednesday? Dude, this is your church. This is my church. And I will build it up. This is my family. Then God entrusts to us some ownership of the relationships here in the, in the building and outside the building and on Zoom. It is God has entrusted to us where we can say, no, this is my church. In Acts 2.42, as we just look through, it says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. We devote ourselves. This is my decision to be committed to my church right here. And I know that's a little spicy to say, but I think it's worth it. You know, COVID has taught us that relationships are so crucial. In 2020, we saw an incredible number of people make Jesus Lord of their life in the campus ministry. In 2020, we saw 20 students become Christians in New Jersey. Crazy. It didn't make sense. I think I've told you guys this before, but the first time that I met Manny of Bonaya, who did the communion today, was when I was sharing my faith with him on campus. The second time I met him was three months later at his baptism. It made no sense. But as people decided to make Jesus Lord during COVID, a lot of the decisions that were made, I think in some ways were theoretical rather than practical. And I don't say that to judge anybody, please understand me. But by the time that COVID was done, a third of the people that had decided to make Jesus Lord were no longer coming to church here with us on Sunday. And I think if that shows us anything, no comment about how they're doing spiritually, but if that shows us anything, it shows us that discipleship without relationships is too difficult. It is so hard. That's why we need the church 61 times in the Bible. The Bible talks about one another passages, relationships that refresh and inspire. And when we are doing our thing as God calls us to, we are challenging one another. We are holding one another accountable. We're loving one another. We're forgiving one another. We're bearing with one another's burdens. In the good times and in the bad, we're able to navigate because of the relationships that God has given us here. And we need it. I need it. This is my church. The last one is we're coming in for a landing here. The harvest is plentiful. Let me hear you say it and you believe it. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. As a disciple, 
Jesus invites us to be disciple makers. I've heard it said that if you are not fishing, you are not following. That's that's a challenging statement, right? But as disciples of Jesus, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we are reminded that God has given us the message of reconciliation, that we are his ambassadors. John 4, 35, I remember as a teenager, I had, uh, we had a, a Bible talk at Randolph High School. And the first Bible talk we ever had, I was so, so scared. I'm pretty sure whatever I had said was not even like logical or biblical, right? I mean, like the Bible said something, I said something totally different. But I remember waking up at 4.35 in the morning before school started that day to pray, to wrestle with God. And I was like, 4.35, there has to be some significance to that. And I opened up the John 4.35. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You know, amongst us right now, in our schools, in our high schools, in our colleges, in our workplaces, in our communities, at the grocery store, wherever you are, the harvest is still plentiful. You know, there are 4 million people in the seven counties that make up northern New Jersey. 4 million people. That is a huge number. It is uncomfortable. And I believe that number is overwhelming, but that can't stop us from making a difference wherever we can. You know, you might have heard that story of uh, uh, somewhere along the coast, there's a man who's walking down the, 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 the coastline, and he sees in the distance a young girl surrounded by all these starfish that washed up on shore. You know, as he looks out on shore, he sees this girl one by one talking, tossing all the starfish back before they die. And the the, the man yells to the girl, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You won't make a difference for all of them. And the little girl with tears replies, but I will make a difference to that one. You know, I think for us, we have to remember that our, our goal as a church is not to hit 500 members or 1,000 members, or 2,000 members, or 5,000 members. Honestly, we think about what we're trying to do. We're trying to get one step closer to everybody. And so I don't, it doesn't matter how many people become Christians and fall in love with Jesus. Man, we have our eyes set on trying to give it to all 4 million. And we're not going to hit all of them, but we can make a difference to that one. You can make a difference to that one. And so we decide, elementary teachings, that the harvest is plentiful. God has invited me in some way, and that looks different for all of us. Maybe it's, it's sharing your faith. Maybe it's being in a Bible study with someone else. Maybe it's after someone becomes a Christian, walking with them and loving them, maybe driving them to church. There are all different types of ways that we can be involved in the harvest. It's not as simple as you being the person to meet someone and study the Bible with someone. That's a bit of a narrow perspective. There are tons of ways we can be involved. But God invites us to be involved. Amen? One conversation can transform someone's eternity, and God wants to partner with you. And so we're going to come in for a landing here. And just to recap some of the things that have been shared, right? Jesus invites us and challenges us. Yes, we want to grow and mature and thrive. But we have to make sure that we do not neglect the elementary teachings. The poetry, next slide. The poetry, the beautiful thing about it 
is that from the time that it's planted, by the time that it grows, it reaches its peak prime maturity at 80 years old. Not at two years old, not at five years old, not at 10, not at 20, but at 80. I had the crazy thought the other day, bro, I think I've peaked. I think like the rest of my life is just a downhill climb. I'm, I'm just being honest, right? I have no idea why I thought that. Phil Garrison calls me and he's like, bro, what are you talking about? You've scratched the surface on what God's gonna do in your life. Oh, you barely even broke the soil. Appreciate that, Phil, right? But the same is so true for us. The best is yet ahead for each of us. Our prime maturity is not behind, but ahead. And if we are going to be trees that stand strong in the midst of unwavering conditions, uncomfortable soil, and things that do not bode well with our soul, we have to dig in and develop deep roots. I want to close out reading what Caleb says in Joshua 14 in verse 7. Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to explore the land. He kept me alive for 45 more years, so here I am, 85 years old, 85 years young, and I am still strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out of the battle today, now, as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord has promised me on that day. Let's pray together. God, we are so excited that you accept us where we're at in the, the warts and all, in our mistakes, in our shortcomings. You have plans for each of us, not simply to become Christians, but that's just where it all begins. That's our starting line. And you're going to help us navigate and get stronger and stronger along the marathon that we run of discipleship. Thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us the relationships here, for giving us Jesus as our example. I pray that each of us, as we walk out of here, are convicted, are deeply moved to say, I will continue to, continue to kindle the fire of following you more and more. Thank you so much, God. The best is still a yet ahead of us. Please, please, God, Help us deeply believe that, to not settle, to not go in reverse, but instead by you and with you to charge forward faithfully. In your son's name we pray, amen.